Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Thank you, Aaron. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Barry, for uh, that four-week series on the bread and the cup. I asked him if he would do that, and uh, he got studying and talked about how rich his studies were, and I said, how much time you need? He said, I'd like to take two weeks on the bread and two weeks on the cup. I said, you got it. So we really appreciate that, uh, Barry. Uh, as you heard, it's camp week, and so a lot of our members have gone on out to Fort Hill Christian Youth Camp for what uh, always holds to be a great week uh, for most. Uh, sometimes there's mishaps, sometimes there's some tears, uh, but uh, it's pretty memorable usually. Uh, I was already slated to preach this morning because Anthony was going to be out at camp. So uh, because of his mishap uh, that he had this week, you probably heard about it, uh, he broke a bone. Let's just leave it at that. Um, I'm, I'm still here. He's in town, but he was pretty, he was pretty achy this morning. Uh, he sent a text and said, I'm, I'm in some pain today. So uh, keep that poor guy in your prayers and uh, maybe check on him this week. We'll try to take care of him while he's home. Uh, probably going to be a good week for him to get a little recuperation. Uh, but anyhow, we're going to talk about some things this morning that have to do with uh, the scripture that was read, being fit for the kingdom. Being fit for the kingdom. It's an interesting word. It's throughout the scriptures, fit, fitting, or fitness, not, tech, not uh, necessarily in the sense we think about fit or fitness physically. We're going to talk about spiritual fitness more so, although Paul did say to Timothy that physical exercise is profitable a little bit in this world, but godliness is profitable for all things, and that's what we really want to focus on here from the pulpit this morning. I hope you you uh, visit the fitness center from time to time, but uh, you're in a fitness center of sorts right now, and uh, we want to we want to learn some things about how to um, be fitting. Our heavenly Father has done some things that were fitting to Him for our benefit. First of all, His intentions are good toward us. Do you remember the passage where Jeremiah poured out to Israel on behalf of God and said that God knows the thoughts? He quoted God and said. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you hope and a future. That's really revealing. That tells us how God feels about us. It tells us what He wants for us. And of course, that's not an exception. He wasn't in just a good mood that day. Jesus came and He said, I'm the bread of life. And we talked about that this morning at the communion. I'm the living water and I want you to live abundantly. God wants us to live abundantly. To do so, we need to live obediently. In other words, to receive abundance in our lives in Christ, we also need to know that it's fitting to live obediently to Christ. And we want to talk about making some adjustments this morning in things that are fitting. Uh, there are some ways in our culture that uh, good people, even sometimes Christian people, I believe, have lowered our standards. We've lowered our standards and feel that it's good enough. 
And maybe because the, the standards of the world are so far apart from God's, and sometimes, if you'll admit it, maybe you believe God's standards are just too high for you. But you know, His standards are right where He wants them to be. His standards that He calls us up to, they're right where He wants them to be. They're right where they're supposed to be for us. And He said, your responsibility is to live in such a way that you fit with my high calling. And He's given us the power through Jesus Christ and His Spirit abiding in us to do that. And He's given us direction on how to do that. So this morning, I'm going to hit on a few things where the Scriptures point out fittingness, and they happen to be in some touchy areas. They happen to be in some sensitive spots for us, especially in our American culture today. And they have to do with questions that go around amongst Christians uh, that we ask, is it okay to do this? Do you think this is wrong? And so this, this touches on some sensitive uh, areas in my life, and challenges me, but it may also for you. But I hope you'll appreciate it. Now, to lighten things up just a little bit, uh, I brought my one of my favorite childhood toys up here to set before you. This thing, I used to play with one of these when I was a kid at my grandma's house. It's got all different shapes cut out in it. And then the shapes are in the box. And you can uh, dump them out loudly in a, in a wooden pulpit, the microphone. But I sat there for hours at my grandma's house uh, when I was 16, 17. No, I'm just kidding. When I was a little kid, I still would if I had it. I wish I knew where that one was. But you just sit here and you find out, where does this one go? And you're just little and you're trying to force it in the oval, but it's round. And you, you go, ah, yeah, that's satisfying. To a two or three-year-old, that's satisfying. And she had one that was round like a globe and it had two handles on it. And you could pull it apart and shake it and dump the parts out. It was cooler than this one. But I bought this one for this sermon. And maybe someday I'll have a grandchild or something that'll use it too. Until then, I'm going to play with it. But the biggest reason I brought it up here was at the risk of me looking silly. Uh, I want you to remember this sermon. And generally, sometimes when you do something like this, where it's just kind of uh, sitting before you, it'll etch it into your mind the things that we're talking about. So on a serious note, I hope it helps you remember some of these things. So God's done some things that were fitting in His mind for us. Here's one of them. Because of the great love with which He had for us to make us fit for eternal life, Jesus told John the Baptist, permit this to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Do you remember when He said that? when he was being obedient to his heavenly father, not having a sin to have washed away, but being obedient to his heavenly father, he was baptized for the remission of sin. But it was to, he said, to fulfill all righteousness. Here's what else he did. Our heavenly father, the Hebrew writer said about him in chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's all of us, male and female, inherit, inheriting together the kingdom of heaven, it was fitting for him that he might bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was fitting in God's mind that Jesus Christ would suffer for us to complete his life, his perfection, 
And he called us to do the same as well. Remember James said, let, let patience have its perfect work when you're in trials that you may become complete. Remember that? It was fitting for God that Christ should suffer. He calls us to do the same. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, For such a high priest as he became for us, the mediator between God and man, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Such a high priest was fitting for us. Why? Because we're sinners. But also he calls us to do what? He calls us to be holy, blameless and harmless as children of God in this world. Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Come out from among them, 2 Corinthians 6. He's calling us to do these things so that we can go with Him into the heavens. God did these things because it was fitting with what He thought was good for us, best for us, and would save us from our sins. Now He calls us to do some things that are fitting. I mentioned a few as I went through these, but here are some passages that teach us about this. But before, well, before we do, let me remind you. What are we trying to do? How are we trying to live? Are we just trying to do a little better than we used to do? Are we doing really good in some areas, therefore you feel that we can, you can excuse some other areas of your life that aren't good? You hear that off, you know, all right, I have trouble with this, but look, I, I do this. Do we excuse some of our weaker areas? What are we trying to do? Here's what Paul reminded the Roman Christians that we were trying to do. In chapter 6 of his letter, after in chapter 5, he said, we have access by grace into this faith. He said, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Remember? And just as Christ died and was buried and was raised, even so you, being baptized into him, died and buried and, and were raised. Now that was a paraphrase. And coming to this eighth verse, he says, For if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If we died to sin, we'll live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, that you should, uh, um, excuse me, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but, listen to this very closely, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members, that is your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourselves as being alive. Come out from among them amongst whom you once were living and sinning and were dead. Come out of that. Total death to sin, total life in Christ. So this is not just, I'm going to try to do better as a Christian. This is a call to complete fitness in Christ. Okay, I want to clarify that. We don't even want to smell like smoke. 
let alone get, get close to the fire of sin. We don't even want to smell like smoke. So there's several words in the New Testament translated fit or fitting. I'm not going to bring them all out as we go, but there's two general meanings. Here's one of them. Uh, in some senses, it means to stand out and be conspicuous. So to live fitting as a Christian would mean that you are going to stand out. You're going to be different. You're going to look different. And God calls us to that. He calls us to be a, a witness of, of, of who we are and what we become. The other word that's used regularly means to be credible or not discrediting. Think about that one. To live fittingly, and we'll, we'll point out some examples of what that is. To live fittingly means don't discredit yourself as a Christian and your testimony by doing certain things that just don't fit. Hey, that worked pretty good. I shook that and about four people went like this. Whiplash in there. I'm going to do that a few times. Some things just don't fit. And he says, what happens is you discredit yourself as a witness, as a testimony, and you discredit that harmless, holy, blameless, separate from sinners Christ who called you to follow him by your own example. You discredit that. So your testimony is weakened. We'll point out um, maybe how some of these things are used on the way through. Here's the first of four things. Idleness over against working with your hands. Idleness. There are many reasons to have a diligent work ethic. Um, there's a lot of psychological reasons that are actually touched on by God in Scripture long ago. It's good for us mentally. It's good for us physically. It, it gives us creativity. It allows us to be productive. We like to be productive. We like to be creative. There's a lot of things that are good. It serves purposes for, but there's two basic things that Paul told the Ephesian church about why you should work with your hands. And here, here they are. In Ephesians 4.28, he said, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has a need. That he may have something. Number one. Let our people work with their hands, not be idle, so that they may have their own food and not be dependent on others when they don't need to be. When they don't need to be. Uh, there's a proverb where Solomon says, prepare your outside work. Make it fit. And I, 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 I laugh because I, wasn't even, I didn't even see the word fit in here the first time that I was referred to this passage. Prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Take care of your priorities. Make sure that you have some labor that is going to produce some food for you and put shelter over your head before you go and start tending to all the things that you want to do in, in, uh, in your house or in this life or all the pleasures you want to do. That was interesting to me. You want to make sure you do what you can do to have, secondly, so that you may give. Solomon also said, cast your bread upon many waters, and it, in due time will return to you. In due time it will return to you. Let the things that you have, Paul is saying, be useful for you, and also so that you may have to give 
to him who is need. Christians have to learn the, the uh, balance of a lot of things, but one of the, the difficult things is to know how to help someone who's lacking. We don't, we don't know why they're lacking always. And Jesus didn't qualify it when he said, go and care for the poor and the needy. He didn't give a whole list of qualifications, did he? And say, now, after you do this background check, and you check all these boxes, and you find out all the motives of their heart and all the, the uh, environmental factors of their life and their childhood upbringing, then help them or not help them. He just said, do it. But Paul turns around to the Thessalonians and says, If any man will not work, neither let him eat. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. There were brothers and sisters who were idle. They began to be busybodies and, and, and spend their time talking about others. And Paul said, this isn't good. If someone who's able isn't working, then we shouldn't be caring for them uh, when someone else may need that. So it seems to me, church, just to, to try to wrap this idea up quickly, seems to me the idea is if we're going to help someone who has a need, we can meet their urgent needs, but one of the things that we need to be about doing is providing opportunities for them to work. If you want to help someone, help them find a way to work. Now, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. There's nothing you're going to be able to do for them. Your hands are tied. One of the worst things we can do is enable people who are idle or lazy, enable them when we could be helping someone else who is in need, willing to do something about it, and the church can help them. So we got some direction here about how to help people. One of those things centers around this idea that's as age old as the garden, and that is that God has work for us to do that is good work and work that produces an income for ourselves. He wants us to learn to do that. If someone's not able, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. We should freely give and help those people who have those needs. And they're out there and they're in here. But when someone's able, we have to learn the tough love and be able to say, if you won't work, we're not gonna help, all right? So that's one of those things that's fitting for Christians. It's fitting that a Christian should work, all right? Words are another thing. Just like many other attributes that we've been blessed with, God granted us with the gift of language, but he had a specific purpose in mind. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's the verse right after. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have to give to him who's in need. The very next verse. The very next verse. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth except words that are good for building people up. Now those may be very cheerful, kind words. Those may be difficult words like, brother, if you won't work, we can't help you. All right? That's a word that builds somebody up. That, that helps them to understand something. He wants us to choose our words carefully and then communicate them effectively as well. Listen to this proverb. A word fitly spoken. There's that word, fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold. Can you finish that? In settings of silver. I don't know what that looks like. I guess I picture it in my mind. It's just, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing. That's all I know about it. 
a word fitly spoken. So the right words, not corrupt words, the right words that are spoken in the right tone with the right motive to build are, are, are a beautiful thing. They're a powerful thing. God has a lot more to say to us about our words than just which four-letter words to avoid. He wants mastery over our mouth as one of our instruments that's presented to Him as an instrument of righteousness. He wants mastery over the tongue. James said, I know, I know. James said it's hard. James also said it's like a fire, like a little kindling of fire that lights a whole forest on fire. He said it's like a little rudder on a ship that can steer an entire ship a different direction. He said it's like a bit in a horse's mouth that can take that big powerful animal and steer it maybe in a direction you don't want to go, under a tree limb, for example. It's powerful. So he wants mastery over it. Your words have a lasting impact on the people around you, your own parents, your own children, your spouse, your brethren, your friends, your co-workers, your, la your words have an impact, so we got to be careful how we use them. Listen, church, you can use your words to light a fire under someone. Let your speech always be with grace, Paul said to the Colossians, seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer each one. You can light a, a spiritual fire under someone to seek the Lord by the choice of your words. Or you can light them on fire. But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. It might be you that's on fire. So, careful choosing of the words. We light others on fire in a good way, or we will give an account of the idle words that we choose. But we can decide what comes out of our mouth. And Paul made it very clear about some things that are fitting or not fitting. Listen to this. Let not even this be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You know how you'll speak more gracious words? If you're a thankful person. You don't have to sit there and think about every word that comes out of your mouth every day. I hope I don't say something I shouldn't. Paul says, if you're thankful, if you're gracious for the Lord God and what He's done for you, you're not going to be slandering people and cussing and saying things that are coarse and rude and out of line and unfitting. You won't do that. You'll be thankful for who you are and what you've become. That's the solution right there. Have a thankful heart. And you won't have to worry as much about what you say. But, coarse or foolish joking, just like trying to fit this rectangle up here in this star, or down in this square, it just doesn't fit. Gracious words. Gracious words fit perfectly. Sexuality. Sexuality has to do with a lot more than just sex. I'm going to hone in on that particular aspect of it. Sex is not fitting except within the marriage bond. It doesn't fit God's plan for you. It doesn't fit the good that He intends for you. And we have to trust Him when He says it's a sin that leads to death. 
that those who partake in it will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless, of course, they seek repentance and forgiveness from God, which he's perfectly willing to do. But until then, let's talk about this for just a second. Paul said, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Not even named among you. Not even a, an example of it amongst the people. That would be fitting for the saints. Here are three reasons, church, that I want to put forth why it is not fitting to engage in sexual practices outside of marriage. First of all, marriage is covenantial. It's a covenant. It reflects to the world the permanency of a covenant relationship between Christ and His people, Ephesians chapter 5. It reflects to the world what God has always wanted to do throughout the Old Testament is have a people that provide an example so that the world may know that I am the Lord your God. He said it so many times throughout Israel's history, and now he's calling us to do the same thing. So that people may know, have a permanency, and it's through marriage that you do this. Anything other than that is not permanent, okay? So, God's commitment to us is for eternity, and ours is to be to Him for eternity, and we are to live with eternity in view. Marriage reflects the depths to which we may know God and fully be known by Him, where all things are out in the open and laid bare before Him with nothing to hide. That's our relationship with God. And he says marriage reflects that. There's no shame in being naked, a man with his wife, Genesis 2, 24 and 25, because they knew each other. Have you ever noticed in the Scriptures, by the way, when a man... Uh, uh, had sexual relations with his wife, usually always says, and he knew her. But when he's talking about sexual immorality, it says he went into her or he lay with her. That's interesting to me. I never noticed that until a year or two ago. He knew her. There was nothing to hide. All things were open. They were unashamed, and it was good. The marriage bed, the Hebrew writer says, is undefiled. But outside of that, you're in a whole different relationship. You're in a whole different relationship with God as a single person. It's covenantial. There's permanency to it. Here's the second thing. I've got to hurry up through this. Marriage is sacrificial. It stands as a testimony of God's unconditional and undying love. Whereas Christ submitted in all things to the Father, so He calls a wife to submit to her husband. And whereas Christ loved the church that He gave His life for her, both emotionally daily and also bodily in death, so husbands ought to love their wives so much that she doesn't doubt that He'd die for her because you would do it every day in your words and deeds anyhow. And so it's sacrificial. And this is something that marriage is designed to provide for us. Marriage is protective, thirdly. It's an agreement of fierce loyalty to devote oneself to the protection of another's soul. To care for their soul under any and every condition for the remainder of this life. That's why Adam was approached by God and said, God said, what is this you have done? He did not step in when the serpent was speaking to Eve to protect her soul. What is this you've done? And it's protective in that 
You put your needs and wants above their needs and wants above one's own for their highest good and greatest joy. Over the last, I don't know how many years, uh, human history, right? But in our culture, over the last maybe 25 or 30 years, and, and in the last 10 especially so, it's become increasingly commonplace, socially acceptable for men and women to want to experience some of the benefits of marriage without the exchange of rings. And that includes sexual intimacy, and it includes cohabitation. Cohabitation, the two things go together pretty closely. I've been told oftentimes, well, we're not having sex. <laughs> Thanks. Another experienced minister over here. All right. Possibly that's the case. There's still quite a few other issues here that we're, we've got to talk about. But I'm just going to lump the two together. There's some major flaws with these choices, especially for Christians. First of all, cohabitation is not a covenant. It's a convenience. It's a convenience. It's pretending to live in a house of commitment while you leave the back door open to leave if you want to. It says without saying it. Nobody would ever say this to their lover. I want everything I can get from you without giving you everything I've got. Some of you who are a little terse might say, you want the milk without buying the cow, right? As long as the back door is open, there's no unconditional love. There's conditions. There's not a covenant of permanency. There's not peace because you know the back door is open to leave at any time, and so is theirs. There's no real lasting peace there, and there's no reflection of, to the world of the witness between Christ and His church. Secondly, cohabitation is not sacrificial, it's selfish. Anyone who's afraid to make a lifelong commitment to you in marriage because, well, it's a commitment, probably isn't going to live sacrificially for you on a daily basis. If your lover won't even go down to the clearance counter to buy a ring to make it permanent, they're not going to die for you either. And they're probably not going to be around for sure when time comes and a day comes where you need your adult diaper changed or your bedpan. They don't want to buy a ring because it's a commitment. They're probably not going to be there when you really need them. So it's not sacrificial, which is the design of marriage. It's selfish. Cohabitation is not protective, it's actually prohibitive. Instead of fiercely protecting that person's heart from Satan, whom you've taken in, you are walking hand in hand with them and a bunch of other people through a wide gate that has a broad path that is going to lead squarely before the throne of God where you have to tell him, my ways are better than your ways. I'm smarter than your plan. And I believe I made a good choice not to be married, but to live together. To which Paul has already spoken in Christ, fornicators will not enter the kingdom of heaven. No surprises there. Instead of loving a mate, you're placing some other parent's son or daughter squarely in danger, creating spiritual homicide for this person by causing them to sin 
beside your own self also. That's not protective love. That's spiritual homicide. I could go on with some more other things, but I think that you get those three uh, probably and realize that sex is more than a physical union between a man and a woman. It's a spiritual and emotional connection between a husband and wife who have nothing to hide and everything to share. And that's why God's reserved sexual intimacy for the marriage of two people who have committed everything to each other, even their very lives. This is a reason why the Spirit says of a husband and wife in Scripture, He knew his wife. Parents, be awake and be aware. Usually this thing happens before they come and ask you for your approval. So now is the time when your children are young to be teaching them about not just don't you live with somebody, about the beauty of marriage and what's the expectation of God in it and why that they would want to seek that as the ultimate uh, example of a human relationship that a spiritual relationship with God and that you'll be fulfilled in this and not in another way. It doesn't just make God mad. So self-interest in a relationship doesn't fit with God's plan for your highest goal, but... For a disciple of Christ, marriage is the answer that we're looking for. I got one more. Hope you'll bear with me. Sobriety. Sobriety. Complete and utter sobriety. Like chemical free sobriety. Chemical free sobriety. Alcohol, uh, substance, narcotics, anything like this. Just complete and total The way God made you when you came out of the womb, sobriety. Before stuff starts hitting your tongue, getting shot into your arms, anything like that, any of it, all right? Let's talk about what's fitting and not fitting. I like how King Lemuel's mother in Proverb 31 just has a heart-to-heart with him, and she says this, It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who's perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler, we read in the same book from Solomon's lips. We have all kinds of warnings, not just about drunkenness, but about getting close to that fire. And so the question I have for you is not, well, is it right or wrong to get... That's talking about... Uh, lingering long. That's talking about um, getting drunk, forgetting the law. See, they're drunk. The question is not, is it right or wrong to get drunk? I think we all agree here that the Bible says you shouldn't get drunk. It's a sin, and it'll keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Is that right? We good? All right. The question is not even, is alcohol a sin? It's just a substance. So is a tobacco plant. So is cannabis or hemp. God made them. They put them here. We can do some good things with those things. The question is, is it fitting for a Christian to partake in drinking alcohol? Is it fitting to even take one sip now? And secondly, there's a second question that comes with it. Do I want to represent Christ in the most excellent way possible? Those two questions, I think, give you the answers. Without, it's not Matt Thomas' opinions. These are questions we're told to pursue in Scripture. Excellence, godliness, um, influence, impact, 
making disciples. I just want to ask you, does this fit? Is it fitting for a Christian to drink alcohol? And do you want to be the best example? Now, I do want to speak from experience a little bit. 34 years I've been a Christian. About five of those were spent looking at life through the bottom of a bottle. I've got that experience. The last 22 have spent talking to people across tables or in jail cells or in hospitals that have been looking at life through the bottom of a bottle. Here are some things that I've experienced. I have never had a life transformational conversation over a beer with someone. I've never baptized someone at a drinking party. Not once. I've been my share of them. In fact, as a campus minister in that number one ranked drinking school in the nation, whoop, whoop, I've never even been invited to a drinking party. Why wouldn't they invite me? They come to the devotionals on Thursdays and they're at church on Sundays. How come they're not inviting me to come to the drinking parties? I don't get that. I've never had someone say they were led to Christ by the tremendous restraint of Christians who only drink one or two beers or glasses of wine or coolers or whatever it is. Shots. They're just so devoted to Christ. They, they stop at one. I've never heard that. I've talked with some who weren't led to Christ because of Christians who only had one or two. I've baptized some who came to Christ because of Christians who had a 180 degree transformation, died to sin, don't want to even get close to the fire, smell like smoke, ain't touching that stuff ever again. Influence on someone that was so profound they said, this is true faith in a holy God. I've had that happen. I've sat with Christian young people in hospitals, jails, and in the front pew who said they would stop at only one or two drinks like their parents did. I'm not churlish about it. If I'm invited, I'll go to a special occasion with my family or friends or my brethren. If there's a cooler over here with some alcohol in it, I won't be in it, but I'll go. Jesus went to a wedding I don't think he made alcoholic wine. It's not what the word has to mean, alcoholic. But he associated with people. We're told to be in the world, just not of the world. We can go and associate, love people, enjoy company of good people, and not partake in those things. I firmly believe that. But for those of you who are still sitting here doing mind gymnastics right now, trying to jump over all those hurdles that I just threw out there, what if I did walk over at a graduation party with one of our young people and pick up a beer? What would you think of that? I'm talking about those of you who are really wrestling with us going, I still don't think so. What would you think if I drank one? It shouldn't bother you. What if I handed one to Anthony? What about if uh, Sam and Tim came over and we were all drinking a beer together and we were just sober as could be? You know, just not slurring words. What would you think of that? Now, if, if you're honest, you're probably thinking, that doesn't fit. I don't like that. I know you're not saying I'd prefer you to. 
why would it be not fitting for us, but it would be for you? What's the difference? I'm not saying you're going to hell. I don't know who you are and what you do and how much you drink and all these things. But I am saying that alcohol and Christianity... It just doesn't fit. Sobriety. Look at that. I'm trying to get that one in there. Sobriety fits. If you want to not be discrediting to the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving power, if you want to not discredit your own influence and example in the lives of others, if you don't want to cause your brother to stumble, I'm begging you not to touch it. Not to touch any of it. It's not worth it. Besides that, there's a million other beverages out there to drink. There's a million other habits to pick up that won't hurt you, kill you, or somebody else. My goodness gracious. God has given us every good and perfect gift from above. It comes down from the Father of lights. And Paul said in another place, He's given us all things to enjoy. Why take something and make it a vice or cause someone else to? There are things that are fitting and things that aren't fitting for Christians. Those are some that scriptures talk about. Can you think of some others? I'll bet you can. But hopefully, you'll see that the questions that we need to ask are not just, is it right or wrong? How about this situation, that situation? But who am I and what am I trying to portray? Is this fitting for me to do? I want to hear, and I think you do too, my Lord say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want to hear that. I don't want to hear him say, why did, why did you trip up someone by your unfittingness in your language, your idleness, your drinking, or whatever. What was the third, fourth one I tell? Hopefully you'll remember. Don't trip people up in this. Those who do not do those things that are fitting will be given over to other choices. Here's what God said in Ezekiel, and I'm just going to end it with these three passages. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Ezekiel 16.50 God's still going to do what's fitting for us. Romans 1.28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. No one, and this was the reading that Aaron read for us today, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If we're going to leave sin, let's die to it, church. If you're going to be on a mission to make disciples, which you are commissioned to do as a Christian because people are dying in sin and they're hurting from things that we've talked about, let's stand away from the fires and the vices and call people to Christ through us. Let's not stand in it with them and try to do it. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Amen? Let's be our utmost for His highest. And let's stand and sing this song. And if anyone needs to be baptized into Christ today, by all means, come forward.